You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have author Ian Leslie on the podcast today. I loved how he talked about leaders that it's okay to not know, that it's way better to be curious and ask questions and be willing to admit you don't know everything. Don't assume that just because you know how to do this job or your company knows how to make money and have done very well for the last five years, that the same is going to be true the next five years. Always assume that there are things happening out there that you don't know about and that you need to. This week, I'm speaking with acclaimed author Ian Leslie about curiosity. Ian researches and writes about human behavior. He's the author of books Born Liars, Curious, and Conflicted. He regularly writes for the Financial Times, The Guardian, and The Economist. The Wall Street Journal says he writes convincingly about the human need and desire to learn deeply and develop expertise. The Atlantic Magazine says Ian Leslie's writing is a cool bath of sanity in a world of frenzied hot takes. I'm a huge fan of his work. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alan. It's very nice to be here. Super. So I want to start. Ten years ago, you were reflecting on your life on your birthday, and you said, the best things in life are difficult unless there is at least something in your life that is complex and challenging and forces you to adapt. Learning the piano, running a business, raising a family, you're not awake. You're sleeping with your eyes open. How did you discover this truth about life? Well, I think I continually discover it. It's something I sort of discover and rediscover. I should say, you know, I don't have a dramatic backstory. My life has been unbelievably privileged and lucky. I didn't grow up rich or anything like that, but I, I grew up in a, a loving, secure household with a great family, which I think is the greatest blessing of all. And I happen also to have the kind of temperament, which is, you know, reasonably even keeled. So I, I've got these kind of great sort of gifts of, of luck going, going for me. But what I've realized in, in my life and, and in my career is that if I just let myself cruise on those, on some of those gifts and whatever I'm doing, if I'm accomplished enough to make a career at something, you know, I can just go into cruise control. Then I fairly quickly start to get really bored and uncomfortable and unhappy. And that what I need in order to feel happy, or at least something approaching that, is to feel challenged and to uh, seek out some sort of complexity, some sort of difficulty, where I'm continually unsatisfied and I'm always trying to go further. You know, happiness can sound a bit like, oh, I'm, I'm just happy now. I don't have to do anything. That's not the kind of happiness I'm looking for. I'm looking for the happiness of continual challenge and, and seeking satisfaction and not getting it and therefore wanting some more. How did you come to want to write a book about curiosity? Well, it struck me that I had built my life around curiosity, really. My first career was in advertising. And um, I worked in advertising for a long time. In fact, I still sort of dabble in it from time to time. And I worked as a strategist, or a, they sometimes call them planners. They don't plan anything. But what they do is they're the people responsible for understanding the consumer. And then working with the creative teams and, and the clients 
to produce advertising that the consumer will like, right? Which is kind of important, but it's something that often gets lost because creatives just want to make something cool and clients just want to make something that comes in under budget. Or, And, you know, so you need someone saying, hang on a minute, what do consumers say? What do they really think? How do they really feel about, about your brand and what are they really going to do? And really, it's a license to explore your curiosity about human behavior and human nature, which is why I enjoyed the job. And then I had a kind of early midlife crisis, which I recommend. You should get your midlife crisis in early. And um, and thought, well, I d- I, this has been huge fun, but I don't want to do advertising the whole of my life, or not just advertising. And I became a writer and I started writing about human behavior, human psychology, the quirks of, of how we think and how we feel and what we do in the world. And of course, that was really an extension of my curiosity too. So after a while, I thought, well, you, your whole life is driven by curiosity. You, you constructed this odd kind of life or career around it. Why not examine what it is? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, I think this is a really undervalued and misunderstood trait of human nature, incredibly important, increasingly important in the modern world. And yet everywhere we look, we see it undervalued and dismissed. So I, I, in the end, I, I started thinking, you know, it's a huge reason to do this book as a kind of mission to get people to explore their curiosity better. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And and I love your subtitle, Why Our Future Depends on It. And just my perspective, um, read your book, and it was one of those kind of revelatory books. Spending three decades in organizational learning, I've come to the view that curiosity is the fuel that drives the learning machine. And of course, everything you've written about sort of supports that point of view. So you've traced this back through history. We know that curiosity killed the cat that our oldest stories, Adam and Eve and the Tree of Knowledge and Icarus and the Sun, you've written about all that. Why was curiosity considered a vice and not a virtue way back when? It's a fascinating question. And of course, you know, there's lots to say about that. Broadly speaking, curiosity was considered a, a vice really up until only a few hundred years ago, really kind of post the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and the Industrial Revolution. We, we started to think, oh, maybe curiosity is a good thing, but we never completely lost our suspicion of it. Okay, so so to answer your question, why was that and, and why is that? I think the simplest answer to that is that if your prime concern as a, a government or a leader of any kind of an organization is order and efficiency and just getting things done and making sure people don't step outside of the lines, then curiosity is your enemy. Right, because you don't want people asking why, why, why do we do it like this, or, or why, why do I have to believe this? What's that about? You know, the Catholic Church was not really keen on people asking why. That you know, why does God believe this, and is there a God? Nobody wants to hear that, right? So, so curiosity was framed as this vice, as this dangerous distraction from the task of of, of the true path, right? And in any society, it could be a, a communist society, an atheistic communist society, you will see the same suspicion of, of curiosity. The moment you're living in an organization uh, or a society or an organization which values innovation and creativity and making progress of some kind, then curiosity suddenly becomes valuable because curiosity is how you you open up new fields of knowledge because you're asking new questions. Yeah. Well, and you've said, in addition to, it's kind of a, a threat to the established order at worst, and at best, it's a wasteful luxury. And if you hold that view as a result, we fail to invest in it. And I'm wondering, why is this a big mistake? Yeah, there's the great 
just in your first point, there's a great quote from the writer Nabokov who said, curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. Right, a, a curious person is essentially a, a little act of rebellion against the established order. Right, because you're saying, why? Why is it like this? Why does it have to be? Why couldn't it be like this? And then who knows what's going to happen next? Right, and so in in a way, the answer to your question is right there. Why do organisations find it difficult to deal with? Because organisations often get overly concerned with hierarchy and order. And keeping things as they are, essentially, because it suits certain people in, in, in the organization. The second reason, which is a little more benign, but still kind of dangerous in the long term, which is efficiency. I mean, curiosity is, is getting interested in things that you don't have to get interested in, right? And if you put a huge premium on minimizing your inefficient time and just being productive, at least in a kind of short-term sense, then you don't have time for your employees to be curious. You don't have time for them to say, oh, maybe we could try it this way. Or what about this? Or maybe if I go and research this topic, I'll come back with an interesting insight into this field. They don't have time for that, right? You just want people to do the thing that we know how to do and do it as efficiently as possible. And if your focus is on that as an organization, then you will quash curiosity wherever it rears its head. So Ian, you're a creative artist for a living. Do you try to optimize all of your time or do you have lots of wasteful time to think and boredom? (laughs) How does that work for you? It is a great question because I have learned over the years of of being a a writer to to value my unproductive time (laughs) and to see it as in some sense productive, which is not instinctive, right? So so if if there are mornings or, or holidays where I just go to my desk and I try to write or I try to think or I try to read and it's just not happening. Then that used to make me feel very anxious and think, well, you know, you're, you've given up this, this fantastic career in advertising and now you're a writer. Well, you're just sitting around at your desk doing nothing. And I learned to just relax about that because I, I, I learned to see actually those days when you think you're not doing much, often your, your brain is just recuperating and going deeper in, into some sort of subconscious reflection that will revitalize your the project that you're working on. So you'll come to the desk tomorrow, you'll just be full of ideas. You know, the brain doesn't work according to this kind of tailorist, you know, high efficiency organization. The brain is inherently this kind of annoying, inefficient, you know, gets distracted, goes all over the place. And you kind of have to learn to dance with that. And, and I think that's true at the organization level too, right? Obviously, you don't want people coming into work and not doing anything or, or staying at home and not doing anything. But you have to understand that if you you want imaginative, innovative, curious employees, you've got to give them a little bit of movement, a little bit of slack in the way they they approach their work. Yeah. So having a little bit of space is not necessarily a bad thing, but I think a lot of people, gaps in the calendar means they're not busy or contemplative thinking with your feet up on the desk is thought of as goofing off. Yeah. And and in fact, not just that, but like getting involved um, in any kind of endeavor or enterprise that isn't immediately and obviously contributing to the bottom line is frowned upon. Well, you know, that there are plenty of examples of organizations or, or individuals who have done something where they, they didn't know there was going to be a payoff, but, you know, later on it does pay off in a big way, either to them or to the organization. So the truth is we just don't know how our curiosity is, is going to pay off, but actually it pays off much more often than, than you think. Yeah. So Ian, I want to uh, get us grounded in the different types of curiosity. You describe two types in the book and you argue for the deeper one. Can you tell us what they are? Sure. 
So if you look at the literature from Psychology on Curiosity, which goes back several decades, it's very complex. There's lots of different branches of it. They find it quite hard to get to grips with, actually, because it's sort of a mix of cognitive and emotional and instinctive. It's all these different things. It doesn't kind of sit in a little box somewhere in the brain. But there is one consistent theme, which is, broadly speaking, there are two different types of curiosity. And the technical terms for them are diversive and epistemic. Now, diversive curiosity is the hunger for new information. It's a hunger to find an answer to a question. And it's it's instinctive. It's the curiosity you feel if you ever, you ever do a crossword puzzle, you, you know, you want to work out what's what goes in those boxes. But it's also the curiosity we feel every day when we're sitting at a screen and we see the subject line on an email or, 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 or we click on something on social media that catches our interest. So it's got that kind of slight magpie-like quality where you're going, oh, what's that? What's that? Oh, I must know that. Let me find out about that. And it's where curiosity begins because it kind of takes us off the beaten path, right? Whatever we were doing, whatever we're thinking about, diversive curiosity hits you and goes, oh, come over here. Try this. Look at this. Try and find out what's the answer to this. Now, that's great because, as I say, it it kind of takes you out of your everyday kind of existence. Um, But if you only have diversive curiosity, then you end up kind of chasing these little dopamine hits of satisfaction for, for, for when you get the new information. And you know, it doesn't really deepen and accumulate into anything particularly valuable. So what we need to learn to do as individuals and as organizations is transmute diversive curiosity into epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the desire to accumulate knowledge as opposed to just getting new information. So that means building knowledge over time and whenever new information comes in, attaching it to the existing networks of knowledge about that subject in your brain and turning your curiosity into a longer term more effortful endeavor, right? So if diversive curiosity is something that kind of happens to you, it's instinctive. Epistemic curiosity requires longer attention span. It requires some effort, means you have to put the work in and kind of go deeper into a subject or into into several subjects and explore your curiosity over the longer term horizon. And you have such elegant prose. You described epistemic curiosity provides sustenance for the soul and it can supercharge creative talent and ignite innovation, turning the base metal of diversive curiosity into gold. So I love the way you you put that, just the importance of epistemic curiosity and for, for simplicity, just deeper and more effortful curiosity. That's right. That's right. And it's really the, the kind of curiosity that we are short of in society in lots of different ways. We're not really that short on diversive curiosity. You can think of the internet in its current, in its modern form as a huge machine to generate diversive curiosity, right? Often to make you click and to drive advertising revenues. So, you know, curiosity gap headlines where they kind of, you know, leave a little bit of information out of the headline so that you have to click and you have to watch the video. The whole kind of tech industry has got incredibly terrifyingly good at stimulating our diversive curiosity. And so what we've got to be careful of as consumers and as organizations at the kind of cultural level is how do we, yeah, as, as, as I said, you know, take the base metal of diversive curiosity and turn it into something more worthwhile and enduring. Yeah, well, I'm reminded of in 1931, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. He prophesied that people will adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. And I think a lot of your argument was like the better search gets, 
the less curious we become. And I think that that's another kind of meta theme that you've been writing about for a while, that that's a big problem. Yeah, it, it is. We often worry about the the machines becoming more like humans and taking over more and more human capabilities. We don't worry enough, I think, about humans becoming a little bit more like machines. And the problem is that we're coming to meet the robots halfway. <laughs> you know, right. we're letting ourselves get away. We're turning ourselves into the kind of these automatons that just kind of follow the signals that, 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 that were sent by computers. Because the internet, whether it's Google, Wikipedia, social media, is so good, A, it's stimulating our diversive curiosity, B, it's serving up these very quick, very superficial top line answers to us. We are in danger of losing those skills of more human kind of contemplation and reflection, out of which the greatest insights and new ideas come. Yeah. So last week on the podcast, I had Fasant Dar, who is an AI researcher at NYU, on. And I asked him about Gen AI and the opportunity for leaders. And it was really interesting. And I thought of you because he said the biggest issue he sees is that people aren't thinking deeply enough. He said they need to read philosophy books to learn how to think and ask better questions. And he said, get to the basics of big data and conversant in tech speak. He said he talks to business leaders and they see a shiny solution in search of a problem. They're getting it exactly backwards. That's, that's fantastic. He's so right. And I'm so glad he's saying that. I, I, I often think that AI and its implications are too important to be left to tech people. You know, it's too important to be left to the experts, if you like, because AI, its impact will unfold in all sorts of complex social and, and economic ways that actually tech people only see one kind of small part of. So they're not necessarily the people to go to for wisdom on how to think about it. But here's somebody who sees that. There's a great quote, which I, I use in the book on curiosity from Kevin Kelly, the Silicon Valley futurist guru, who said, this is a few years ago now, but he gets proved more and more right every day, that we're now in a world where answers are cheap. Answers are produced by the billion every day. And the value of answers, just according to supply and demand, is going down. But the number of good questions is not going up at the same rate, may not be going up at all. Um, so the people who ask good questions are going to be the people who are the most valuable in the future. It's the great questions that will open up new products, new industries, new, new ways of thinking. And that's a really, at the moment anyway, that's still something that humans ought to be much better at than GPT-4. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. I think it was Steve Jobs said, you know, it's the intersection of technology and the humanities that makes his heart sing. I'm wondering if you could unpack for us the power of inquiry and scientists thinking mysteries rather than puzzles. Tell us what that is. 
Yeah, so this distinction of puzzles versus mysteries actually comes from originally from national security, where they talked about the, the move from the Cold War mindset to the kind of post-Berlin Wall mindset. And in the Cold War mindset, broadly speaking, the security services were, were, were dominated by puzzles. The, the, a puzzle is something with a definitive answer to it. So a little bit of information that you need to get the answer and you can get it. And if you, you want to find out how many rockets do the Soviets have uh, of a particular kind, sorry, I'm not a military expert, then there's an answer to that right out there somewhere. And if you get enough information, you know, get the right information, you can get the answer to it and then job done. You've solved the puzzle, right? And the point of the person who came up with this distinction was now that we're in this kind of post-Cold War world, very multipolar, loads of stuff that we have to kind of pay attention to all over the world. What's more important is people who can think about and understand mysteries. What's happening to the Chinese economy? What's the the role of Islamic militancy in, in the Middle East? These are kind of deeper, more, more pol- political and social questions, which actually don't have definitive answers. Information is useful, but it actually won't solve the mystery of what's going on here. And this is how scientists think, you know, scientists aren't just about solving puzzles. They're they're not just going, okay, I just need a little bit of information, then I'm going to solve this problem. Scientists are in it for the long term, right? Being in it for the long term means I see the field that I work in essentially as a mystery that will never be solved. And all I'm trying to do is push back the frontiers of my ignorance a little bit every day. And, And that's why it's exciting. So actually, when you treat something as a mystery, knowing it's never going to be solved is what gets you up in the morning. As I'm going back to the beginning of our conversation, it's challenging, right? It's not just like getting the answer to a crossword puzzle. It's asking deeper and deeper questions. The the, the more human kind of approach and and, and the thing that's really valuable for for humans going forward is, is identifying the right mysteries and then trying to solve them, but knowing that you never will. Yeah, and I think in that mystery puzzle frame, I I see everything being reduced, particularly in leadership development. We need seven habits, five trends, three shortcuts, whatever. Everything is treated as a puzzle. And I saw you, you saw a poster on the, on the wall at your kid's school, seven rules for how to be kind. Everything has an answer. And I'm wondering, so there's tens of thousands of books published on leadership and almost everybody frames it as there's a known, that there's some kind of right answer. And I would love to know, since I study this, how would you go about thinking about leadership if you were going to write a book about leadership? Well, good question. I don't know. I, I, I think sometimes it's okay to kind of offer guidelines or principles and say, how about this? But I think it's, can all, it should always be with the caveat that you can't just learn these as like a series of like techniques. And that poster I saw in my kid's school, which was, you know, seven ways to be kind, you know, it's fine. I wasn't getting angry about it, but it just did strike me that we reduce everything to an algorithm, right? You know, you just follow the set of steps and then bang, you'll be kind. Follow this set of steps, bang, you'll be a great leader. And surely one of the profound things about leadership is that that you can't do that, right? Leadership is about, in large part, dealing with the unpredictable, learning to make decisions under uncertainty. And if you think there's a kind of formula for that, if you think there's an algorithm for that, then you're already not doing the job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's one conflict. I'm curious, maybe you could deconflict this for me. And it is the, the 
parable of the fox and the hedgehog. The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And in his book, Good to Great, like the most famous, one of the top business books, Jim Collins says, you got to be a hedgehog, best in the world at one thing. And in the book Range, David Epstein argues, you got to be good at many things and the, and the world has changed. So there's conflicting information here. And I, could, could you explain a little bit more about your point of view? And I've heard you say, fox hog. <laughs> so oh, yeah. you're splitting the baby. So how should we think about that? Yes, I created this genetic monstrosity, the fox hog, because I think people need to do both, quite frankly. There is a great quote from the 18th century English aristocrat and drunk and poet, Horace Walpole, who said, the secret of, of life is knowing uh, a few things very well and, and a little about everything else. And essentially, you know, he captured it right there. You know, there's a thing from recruitment, which is they talk about T-shaped people in some businesses. I think IBM talked about it first. You know, they're looking for people with the vertical of the T means the specialism. And then the top of the T means knowing something about all the adjacent disciplines, right? So the thing that makes you valuable in the marketplace is you know more or you're better at one thing than everyone else. But it's increasingly important that you have the top of the T as well. Because as business gets more and more complex, people work in more multidisciplinary teams. Well, who are going to be the people who are best at working in those teams and the best collaborators? They're going to be people who understand a little bit about all the other disciplines around them. They're going to be better kind of translators and bridge builders and communicators if they do that. So I think we need that in our life and at work, which is know one or two or three kind of fields, know that you know more about that than almost anyone else around you, right? And then try and learn a little bit about everything else. And that's going to A, make you kind of indispensable in what you do and B, make you a much better collaborator and thinker. Yeah, I like that. And so one of the things that, that I found interesting is when Satya Nadella took over at Microsoft, he diagnosed their biggest challenge of the organization, that the culture was a know-it-all culture. And he thought that that, that know-it-all culture caused them to lose in mobile phones, search, and cloud computing. And so his change was very simple. He said, I want us to become a learn-it-all culture. And it's slightly hyperbolic for me to say this, but his change created trillions of dollars in value. And so if know-it-alls have big egos and they're blinded by that, You've written about that and said great work requires us to manage our ego. I'm wondering, can you tell us what role does our ego play in doing great work? Oh, I mean, that's a big question. It plays such a pivotal role in so many ways. I, I don't know where to start. But one of them is, you know, to your Nadella story, which is fantastic, is being aware of and relaxed about your own ignorance. Not assuming and not feeling like you have to display omnipotence. So first of all, don't assume that just because you know how to do this job or your company knows how to make money and have done very well for the last five years, that the same is going to be true the next five years. Always assume that there are things happening out there that you don't know about and that you need to. You know, the consumer is changing. Technology is changing. Your competitors are changing. And you don't know everything that's going on. Being keenly aware of your own ignorance is extremely important. And it's probably kind of what Nadella was getting at when he said, we have this know-it-all culture. You know, we've got fat on, on our own success and, and we need to learn to be humble about what we don't know again, right? So there's that. And, and I just think that the two things that kind of kill curiosity are 
fear and complacency. There are opposite ends of the, of the spectrum, right? If you're complacent about, you think you know everything, you're not going to be curious. But also if you're fearful of showing people that you don't know everything, you're not going to be curious. If you're in a culture at work where everybody's got to be incredibly confident all the time, otherwise they lose respect or they lose status, then you're creating this culture where people just get fearful of asking questions. They get scared of showing that they don't know stuff. And in the best cultures, the leaders model being okay with not knowing stuff. <laughs> so so they'll be okay with asking silly questions, right? They'll be saying, well, I don't know what's going on here. What, what, what do you think? Or, you know, I haven't looked into this like you have. Please explain to me. You know, these simple ways to show that, yeah, I'm a leader and I'm confident about the fact that I don't know everything that's going on. And that's why I'm asking. That's why I'm curious. That's a much more kind of healthy, productive culture than one in which the leader has to be, you know, omnipotent and know everything all the time. Yeah, and I think that's important. A lot of our audience are people early in their career. They're rising stars. They want to be a great leader. They aspire to a future career in leadership. And I think they grow up in cultures where they're afraid to look stupid. And even if the organization tries to create an environment where people feel safe, there's still like cultural habits or norms of behavior where people are afraid to do that. Do you have any advice for for earlier career people to to get over that fear of looking dumb? I think recognizing that there's, there's a high premium early in your career to look frankly more competent than you are, right? Which yeah. but and also frankly that doesn't really go down much through the rest of your your career. And so just being aware of of the game people are playing, right? And that when the the other person around the table projects enormous certainty and confidence of what they're doing, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. They're, they're probably panicking inside just like you are. So that's number one. Number two, yeah, I would say there is a way to convey conviction and confidence in your own abilities. And at the same time, being relaxed about acknowledging the obvious, which is you don't know everything and that you're willing to learn. And actually positioning yourself as the most curious person in the organization is not a bad way to to start because you're basically saying, you know, the reason I'm asking these questions is that I don't know and I'm I, and I want to be a learn it all person to, to borrow Nadella's phrase. So I think that's kind of the way to frame it. Yeah, I love that. Position yourself as the most curious. So you've said curiosity is a muscle and that we can exercise it. Do you have any advice for people for how they can build their curiosity muscle? Yes. First of all, make sure that you're putting in the effort to learn about either your own specialist disciplines or those adjacent ones where you have to know a little about them or something completely different that's got nothing to do with work, although you never know how your kind of side bets on knowledge are going to pay off professionally, make sure you are putting in the effort because there's all sorts of things that the reasons that we get distracted, whether that's just entertainment or doing something that we know is fun, but it's not actually going to enrich our brain in any way. And there are little things you can do as well, like keeping a commonplace book, whether that's a, a real book or online or whatever it is, where you keep stock of your favorite quotes, your favorite insights, or just observations that you've made along the way. So some people I've talked to, and, and I do this myself somewhat, is, is you, you keep a spark file. And that means you, you just have one document. It could be something as simple as a Word document. And you just put everything in there. So whether it's a quote or a fact or an insight or a sentence that you like or, or an observation that you've made, just put it in there. 
basic way, right? Bullet point everything. Now, why do I say, you know, just throw it all in there, don't organize it? Because you'll be amazed after a while it builds up into this incredibly rich, chaotic, mad tapestry of thoughts and ideas. And, and when you kind of cast your eye down it, all these connections start jumping out at you going, oh, well, actually that makes me think about this. So it makes me think about this. And you kind of sparking these new ideas. That's why it's called a spark file. And that's a kind of good way. And also, you know, setting yourself targets for, for reading, I think is a good idea, either by the book or by the page, however you want to do it. But, you know, put the effort in. It's valuable. Even if it didn't seem like it at the time, it's going to pay off in all sorts of ways later on. You've talked about the journal and spark notes and and sort of just writing all of that down. And a lot of our podcast guests who have been, you know, risen to just phenomenal heights in business leadership, and they've all talked about the importance of building a network and connecting with other people. And I want to connect that to Leonardo da Vinci, who's one in a million curious and wrote, but he wanted to meet everybody. Brian Grazer, the, the the movie producer that created Imagine Entertainment and wrote a book about curiosity, it was like he had to just meet everybody and ask a million questions. I'm wondering about your advice for, again, early career people, of all the journal advice you had, what about connecting with people and asking questions? What should they do? How do they do it? And is it important? Oh, great question. So I'm answering this kind of off the top of my head, but I'll say three things. Now, now I'll get to the second thing and I won't remember the third, but the, the first thing is, yes, <laughs> you should try and meet as many people as possible in the organization from different departments and also different generations, right? So talk to some of those guys who've been there a long time. They know stuff. They know where the bodies are buried. Try and get them to the bar. I, I honestly think like, you know, I sometimes freelance in advertising and I'm shown around the agency and I talk to everyone. It's all really nice. And then I get them to the pub, you know, two weeks later, I get a completely different view of the organization. I say, oh, now I understand what's going on. So yes, talk to as many people as you can. Number two, don't just treat them as information sources and nothing else. You know, try and be nice to them, try treat them as human beings and show them some respect. I sometimes see people who kind of saying, well, there's some information that I need from this person. I'm going to get it out of them. Just have a conversation. Don't assume that you, you know what you're trying to get out of it. It's it's that reductionist thing. Ian said, go talk to five people. I made a note. I will talk to five people. Please give me some information that will help exactly, me exactly. be more successful. Exactly. See it, see it as a, see it as a, as a pleasurable endeavor rather than just an information seeking exercise. Um, Love it. And then the, th the third thing, which I've just been thinking about recently, which is connected to that, which is a, a more micro kind of point about how to have a conversation and how to ask questions, which is whoever you're meeting, and this is whether it's at work or, or is think about the questions that they, you think they most often get asked. And try and avoid those questions, right? I, I I sort of wish people would do that more often, just gen just generally. And I see it happening all the time I, I, in in news interviews or celebrity interviews or just in kind of common social life. Where you go, you could say, I don't know, um, somebody's got like a, a weird name. You know, someone's gonna say, well, how did you get that name? And you go, well, you they get asked that all the time. Why would you ask that question? I always think like, just have that in mind. What's the question that person probably gets asked a lot of, whether it's connected to work or, or, or something else? 
Uh, and I'm going to ask a more imaginative or a more unusual question. When you give the question they've heard a thousand times, they'll answer it like a robot because they're like, yeah, I've answered this so many times. You ask them a question that was just a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more imaginative, their eyes will just kind of c- c- come alive. So yeah, g- give a bit of thought to that. Yeah, I love it. So Ian, as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? My goodness, I am currently deeply curious about the relationship between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So for younger listeners, they were the two members of the Beatles (laughs) who basically, you know, changed music and changed the world. And it was really out of the relationship between these two, personal and creative and professional, that was the kind of the atom which kind of transformed our societies in so many ways. So I'm writing a book about that, about those two. What happened when those two kids from Liverpool met? What, What kind of strange chemistry led to this incredible explosion of talent and and creativity and new ideas. So that's what I'm deeply curious about at the moment. Beautiful. I can't wait to read the story and learn the lessons that you tease out of that story. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really enjoying it. Ian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Alan, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks again to Ian Leslie for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.